Hi, everyone. This is Chris Campbell with the Food Institute, and welcome back to the Food Institute podcast. This week, we'll be exploring the growing trend of pet humanization with Canada Pet Food CEO, Brett Furio. But before we get started, I'd like to thank everyone who's been listening to the podcast and ask that you share this episode with your friends and family. In addition to the Food Institute website, we're now available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. So please subscribe, like, and share. So it really extends our reach. So thank you again. And if there are any other platforms you'd like to see the show on, please let us know and we'll see what we can do to get you on there. So with that all said, I'll introduce Brett and ask him how he's doing today. So how are you today, Brett? Uh, Chris, great to see you. I'm doing great today on a cloudy uh, Wednesday morning, but uh, no complaints. Uh, Luckily over here, we're getting a little bit of sun, but what I would like to do, and I think it would probably help out listeners basically, is you can give a brief background on your professional career and how you ended up with Canada and just a basic idea of, you know, your, your professional journey. I really started, you know, coming out of school. Uh, I've always been focused on consumer products. Uh, that's sort of my sweet spot. Um, had some good stints with uh, Abbott Labs, uh, specifically Ross Products Division. Uh, did a nice uh, role with Gillette. I was there for 10 years uh, at Gillette, uh, then at Philips for over seven years. Uh, and then I made a big leap uh, from the big CPG uh, multinational companies uh, to private equity. Um, where I uh, was fortunate to uh, take on the role of CEO of Zarbi's Naturals. And um, that was a great ride. We ended up selling Zarbi's Naturals to uh, Johnson & Johnson in 2018. And uh, been blessed again to get an opportunity to uh, now get into pet food. And I'm currently with uh, Canada Pet. Um, and it's interesting. I think if you look at all of those companies, ultimately the linking pin would be uh, producing the best products possible for consumers and for their families. And uh, I'm super passionate about that. So I think that's a great segue to ask a little bit more about Canada. Uh, and for our audience, you know, specifically food industry companies, they may not be as familiar with a pet food company. So I was hoping that you could give a little background about Canada and basically your ethos with the company. You know, Canada um, was founded in 1996 uh, by a gentleman, uh, well, two guys uh, who had their own farm and feed store in California. You know, they had lots of vendors coming in and out. And I think as they started to look at the quality of the food, uh, specifically around pets, uh, they thought, why can't we get into that business and actually build a better mousetrap uh, and specifically a better quality food? Um, that's truly uh, Canada's. North Star is manufacturing, producing great, great quality food for pets. Um, and that goes all the way back to 1996. Um, my interest in Canada, you know, after Zarby's, uh, I left Zarby's. It was a great ride. We were in uh, the OTC natural space. Uh, some of your uh, listeners might be familiar with it. And around, and that whole idea was around making natural products uh, for mostly kids, but families uh, that were safe, natural, um, but also efficacious. And when I got a chance to look at Canada, there were just so many parallels. You know, you've got moms at Zarbies buying for their children, uh, trying to find the best possible products, chemical free, um, yet that would, you know, reduce uh, if they had a cold, you know, reduce those symptoms. Um, and, at, and at Canada, they were making great, great food. Um, that was best for parents, you know, and, and their fur babies. So there was a real parallel there. And, and interestingly enough, whether you're a parent of a pet or you're a parent of a child, we're seeing more and more that um, consumers are very, very much interested in getting the best they can for their loved ones. 
And as you see this, you know, in, in pets specifically, people are treating their pets much more like children and babies and family members than maybe when I grew up uh, in the seventies, where, you know, you saw the dog out in the kennel. Uh, those, that's, those days are over, uh, which makes the food they buy uh, the consumer much more conscious about what the ingredients are. Is it a good quality? Um, what are the claims, et cetera? And I think uh, candidate for a long period of time has been living that, um, that value. And uh, it just made a natural fit to move one company to the next. And I think that's a great place to kind of segue into this idea of pet humanization, which is really why the Food Institute started taking a bigger look at the pet food market. And like you said, uh, you know, back in the day, you know, the dog would be in the backyard, in the doghouse, and that would be it. And even though it might be part of the family, there was that clear distinction. And now I think it's more likely that Fido is named George and he's sleeping in, you know, the parents' bed with them all day, right? Especially over the last year or so during the pandemic, a lot of people had a lot more time with their pets. So this whole idea of pet humanization seems to also be spurring a lot of additional investment in the space, you know, interest in the space. But I was wondering in your own personal belief, you know, pet humanization, could you try to define it? What does that mean for your company? Uh, you know, maybe just your overall thoughts on the trend. Yeah. You know, pet humanization, it's been happening for quite some time. Um, you know, obviously there's still working dogs, you know, people use them for with hunting and you know, you have sled dogs, you know, they did a rod, uh, race up in Alaska is very, very popular. Um, but when you look at the vast majority of people, the pet has moved, as you mentioned, from the outside uh, into the home uh, and perhaps even into the vet. You know, I think at the end of the day, the consumer um, and the pet, it just it's there's a bond and pets really bring real great joy to people. Uh, there's actually scientific proof of just they can bring emotional positivity to people. And that's why you see a lot of therapy dogs. You see on college campuses, they bring pets onto campus during exams. You see in hospitals, they bring uh, dogs in um, to help with the kids and their emotional state. So there's definitely some magic there. Uh, pets bring joy to people's lives. And I think when you think of that, that naturally uh, just kind of transcends into, all right, if this dog or this pet brings me such joy, I want to do what's best for that pet and take care of it. Um, and people start to look at, hey, what am I feeding my pet? I mean, in the end of the day, the food you provide your pet is the one act you can do every single day that determines, you know, the healthier pet for the long term. And let's face it, there's lots of brands out there. And you're seeing, you know, supplements, you're seeing food, you're seeing all kinds of things that uh, people are now willing to invest against uh, to take care of what, you know, we would call their fur babies. So, we, we've seen this, again, happening quite some time. As you mentioned, COVID really accelerated pet adoption. We see a lot of people trapped at home. Um, many people that were lonely, uh, specifically millennials, who might have had that first apartment and they were working in an office with a community and all of a sudden now they're trapped at home, working at home from their bedroom and you know loneliness set up. And a lot of people went out and actually adopted pets during the COVID pandemic. And what you now have is many more pets and families with lots more consumers saying, all right, what's the best food to buy? And as mentioned, there's lots of choices. And what we've tried to tap into is to say, hey, we want that discerning consumer that really wants the best that they can buy. Um, if you think about cars, you know, people would say, hey, what's, you know, premium cars? People would you know, say, oh, Porsche or uh, Mercedes or Audi or BMW, those would all be in this collective set of very, very good, high premium cars. Candidate will be in that 
uh, in that discussion. And it's really all around the ingredients we use. You know, we do not use fillers. Um, we don't use corn, wheat, no soy, no animal byproducts. Um, we have, you know, wholesome ingredients like farm grown veggies, uh, grains, uh, and premium proteins. All of our formulas are vet approved and exceed AFCO standards, which is the regulatory arm uh, for pet. And we also think about our recipes in terms of being perfectly balanced uh, for the needs of the pet. So we're up there in that group. Um, and I think that's something that people have always looked at Canada as super premium quality uh, product. Um, where we're now leaning towards is say, all right, what's going to differentiate us from the others? And that's really where our sustainability platform is coming into play. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Yeah, I'd love to dive in a little bit on the sustainability in a little bit. But one thing I wanted to do first is just kind of throw a couple of stats that we pulled together uh, beforehand. So the American Pet Products Association noted the industry broke $100 billion in sales for the first time in the, I believe it was the 2021 uh, you know, research year that they had. And then Grandview Research is also expecting that market to reach $125 billion by 2027. So I think that the 100 billion in sales makes a lot of sense with all of these new pet owners during the COVID-19 pandemic and also just having more interaction with them on a day-to-day -day basis. But I was wondering if you could kind of explain what's going to fuel this increase over the next you know, five to six years. Do you really think that this market is going to continue uh, growing at this kind of rate or do you think that there's some kind of saturation point we might hit at a certain point? No, excellent. Obviously, as we think about our forecasts and our business models, we're looking at the same type of statistics. Um, what I would say is this, is that ultimately you're seeing a premiumization that's also occurring. So, look, dogs only eat so much food. Um, and, and so at the end of the day, you know, there's only so many bags of food that you're going to sell. Um, what you're finding, though, is consumers have more and more appetite to buy more premium foods, which actually come at a more expensive price. So just as in my car analogy, if more and more people are moving towards BMW and Mercedes, the overall category is going to grow versus people buying Hondas or, um, or more affordable cars. And we're just seeing that because people have such a personal connection to their pet. They're willing, as they think about their family budget, to spend a little bit more money for a better quality product for their loved ones. That was very similar to Zarbi's. We saw... That pet, that parents there, um, as they started to think about their loved ones and you know vitamins and supplements, they were willing to spend a little bit more, knowing that those choices they make were good for the long-term health of their child. And that exact same premiumization of food is occurring within pet. So I, I guess what I would tell you is that ultimately, I think you'll see the category continue to grow. Um, one driven by more and more pets in people's homes, but also from just the average price is, is increasing. Now, there is a glass ceiling. At some point, you know, if I only make so much money and I have to make choices, I can't continue just to pay more and more. You know, if you think about a Porsche or a Ferrari, there's not many people that can afford that. And we're, we've tried to play is to say, hey, we've got very premium products, but the majority of our line, we're trying to make what I would call affordable luxury. Um, for our consumers to say, we're going to give you the best possible product at every price point so that you don't feel like because you might not have as much as your, the next guy that you can still get a great product for your pet and feel really good about it. So now I'd like to jump into that sustainability uh, 
you know, portion of your company that you mentioned. So in talks we had before this call, you really did note that sustainability was a really important part of Canada's, you know, ethos and kind of mission statement. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit more on that front, and then maybe we could dive into a couple of the details regarding, you know, programs and sourcing and other aspects of the business that kind of bring that idea to life. Yeah, look, sustainability, I think, for pet, um, I mean, when you consider against other categories, we're dramatically behind and it's a bit embarrassing as an industry. Um, you know, if you look at leaders, uh, I think the one that always jumps to mind is Patagonia. I mean, they're really living this idea of, hey, the earth is a finite resource. What can we do based on our choices, do better for the world, better for the planet? And I, and ultimately, when you look at the pet industry um, compared to food, um, compared to um even automobiles, you're not seeing a lot of progress that's been made, despite the fact that consumers have a really big appetite to say, I want to make choices based on, are those companies helping make the earth a better place? Um, And so we saw that as this big opportunity to say, can we lead here? And I believe we can. Um, And What's, you know, if I'm really honest about it, you don't flip a light switch and I'll say, oh, we're sustainable. It just doesn't work that way. And there's a couple reasons why. One, you have an inherent business that is driven uh, a certain way that you need to now evolve over time to make it more sustainable. Uh, but secondary and, and more difficult is the fact the industry has not been uh, very open to changing the overall practices uh, that are in place today to manufacture, ship. Um, packaged food, uh, which is much different than what you see, perhaps, you know, if you go to Whole Foods, you walk down any shelf, you can see all kinds of sustainable solutions and packaging solutions uh, and food uh, solutions that are much better for the earth than um, than others uh, that you might see perhaps in a normal grocery store. And I think pets been just slow to react to that. Um, I mean, if here's an example, if you just take pet food bags, um, are made of a lot of plastic is in those bags. Uh, the reason is it's because plastic is tough um, and pet food is weighs a lot. Um, but when you look at that bag or any bag on the shelf today, uh, on a recyclable scale, they're like a number seven, which is the very worst. They're not, you can't take those bags to your curb and hope that your town is going to, town recycling is going to pick those up. They, they won't take them. They can only go through a commercial type of recycling center. Uh, which is difficult. Um, and so what's ended up happening is people throw those bags away. And, and today, over 500 million bags in the U.S. alone end up in a landfill. Uh, those bags are going nowhere. They will be in those landfills forever. Um, they do not break down. And we just saw that as, wow, that's a really big opportunity. And what can we do to, to go after that and allow consumers to buy a great food? But at the same time, um, when they purchase that food, and they doing right by their pet, can they also do right by you know their fellow man and for the planet? And that's where our whole sustainability um, kind of mission has taken root. And now, uh, and, we, and we can get into it, but now we're looking across our entire portfolio, the way we work, the, our culture, the way we manufacture in terms of where can we start making improvements? And you know, I get a lot of uh, energy from what they've done at Patagonia because you know they didn't start out as this awesome, you know, uh, sustainability company. They've kind of grown their way there and, and and stubbed their toe along the way, which you know they openly state, and they haven't arrived. And I think that's ultimately how we're looking at it, is this is going to be a journey, 
Uh, we'd like to bring our consumers along with us and help us with it, but it's going to take us time to where we get to a point where we say, wow, we've now really come into our own and uh, we're a sustainable business overall. Yeah, I think, you know, business leaders don't take this for granted, but I think the general public does. And that is consumer demand is immediate, but it takes a little bit for a supply chain to really kind of get up to speed and try to address some of those issues. And I find it kind of funny on a food podcast, we do end up talking about Patagonia a lot just because of their, you know, uh, I guess, dedication to the brand ethos. So I guess one of the things I want to talk about here would be those bags in general. Um, an inter- interesting parallel I've really seen between pet and human food is that increased demand for sustainable packaging. And I know you brought up that there's about 500 million a year that go into landfill. So I was wondering, what is Canada doing on this specifically to try to address that? Um, what kind of efforts are you making to create a more sustainable bag? Yeah. So if you start with the bag, as I mentioned, most, well, not most, all bags out there today in the pet category are really not recyclable at all. Um, so what we first looked at is said, all right, you know, how do you make a bag um, that is at least, if it's not fully recyclable, is at least using uh, post, you know, PCR, what they call post um, recyclable materials. And our sustainable bags, uh, our sustained bags rather, are made from 40% PCR. Um, so if you just look at from that standpoint, it's the most earth friendly bag in the category today, bar none, um, which we feel really good about. Again, we're not having a party. We're not having a celebration. It's the first step forward in terms of the bag. Uh, we'd love to get, and we've got ideas and things in the works to get to a much more uh, consumer-friendly um, bag slash container that when it's empty, you can just take it to the curb with the rest of your recycling. Um, that would be a home run. But this was our ability to do the first, you know, the first big move to say, all right, at least all the sustained bags um, our sustain line will be made from 40% PCR, which for us was uh, very rewarding. And we just launched it this past April. And now it's all about educating the consumer, because as you can imagine, consumers, you know, they look at all these bags, they all look the same. Um, we've got to now bring them along the journey with us to say, hey, you're getting great food, but this bag's different. When you opt in on Sustain for Canaday, um, you're making a difference, not just for your pet, because you're giving them uh, fantastic nutrition, but you're also doing better by the world. And I think that's something that is going to take some time to actually catch on and gain traction. Well, I agree with that. I do think a lot of consumers will find that dual kind of sustainability slash, uh, you know, health improvement for their pet kind of angle to be a very attractive one. And speaking about that Sustain the Goodness campaign, I know you partnered with Catherine Schwarzenegger Pratt for the campaign. I'm just wondering if you could shed a little light on the partnership. Has it helped bring awareness? You know, I know you're trying to get this message out there. So just kind of wondering your advertising, uh, you know, elements, how that's how that's doing. Is it gaining traction on social, et cetera? Yeah, we had a um, so what we did with uh, the sustain launch is, uh, again, as you mentioned, we had Catherine as our spokesperson, uh, one of a few uh, uh, that joined us that were passionate about what we were doing. Uh, One, you know, the first bar is, are they passionate about pets? So uh, she is, which is great. And are they passionate about what they feed their pets? And she is. So check, check. And then as we start to talk to her about Hey, sustain. Uh, we talked to her about the bag and why it's different and why we think it's meaningful. We also talked about the recipes. You know, they're premium recipes uh, made with uh, responsibly sourced proteins like Alaskan salmon, uh, wild caught, um, cage free, uh, humanly raised chicken. Uh, and then the vegetables we use uh, come from regenerative farming practices. And we even offer a plant based option for meat free pups. So 
when she heard about that, she was really, really intrigued. She was willing to partner with us. And, you know, for us, it's a win-win. You get someone that's authentic, that's credible, um, and she's got a big audience to help us kind of amplify what we're trying to do to her, you know, to her community. Uh, we also were on the Kelly Clarkson show um, where we uh, launched the product uh, last month. Again, got a lot of good buzz about that. And in my overall sense is, you know, we're, we're, we're in distribution. What we've told our, our retail partners is that, look, when you're asking consumers, um, you know, to buy something different, you know, first and foremost, they're always going to say what's in the bag, right? Because that's what they feed their their pet. So the first hurdle is, is the food and is the recipe really, really good? Check it is, but now it's all right. And also you get this added benefit in terms of the product in terms of what it's carried in and why that matters. Um, and I just think it's going to be a little bit uh, of an education process um, before we get real, real traction. Although early signs are that uh, the product's performing well. Uh, it's in Petco. It's in PetSmart. Um, it's on Amazon and Chewy. And uh, we're, you know, early days for sure. Um, but very, very excited about the consumer response. So it's really interesting hearing that ingredients list, you know, wild caught salmon, um, you know, free range uh, chicken and, you know, regenerative, regeneratively grown vegetables. And a lot of these things are, you know, items we're seeing really uh, dramatically increased demand for, you know, human consumption. So I guess my question here is kind of twofold. So one, does that influence your decisions when you're formulating the products? Do you look to human food trends at all? And then I guess number two is, you know, competition and sourcing. Are you finding any kind of competition there trying to find, uh, you know, the inputs for the product? Yeah. So um, historically, pet food has always followed human trends anyway. Um, you know, it's, if, I, if a trend happens in, in human food, you'll quickly see manufacturers uh, position that for pets. Um, the fact is, you know, pets are not human. So some of those trends actually are beneficial. But what we've always said is pets, you know, they are dogs, they are cats. And we need to make sure that we work with vets to formulate uh, ingredient decks that really make sense for them. Um, you know, you wouldn't go, you know, you certainly wouldn't want my pet eating my diet. I don't think that would be a great outcome for, uh, any pet. So, um, that's number one, but yes, there are trends that are followed, you know, proteins, a big piece right now, if you have active dogs, um, protein obviously is a, is a big factoid in that. And, um, you know, if you think about our pure limited ingredient line, all of our proteins, um, it's the first ingredient in the deck. So the first, and that's important. So, you know, how we formulate our products um, has a lot to do with who's the end user, which is the dog. And, and then we come up with formulas for different dogs, dogs that are active, dogs that are not so active, dogs that might be a little bit overweight, uh, dogs that are puppies, what have you. Um, but yes, humanization is also affecting the category in terms of the offerings we make. Um, in terms of competition, you know, I'm totally open for competition and I'd actually embrace it, especially around sustainability. We're a little company. We're privately held. Um, you know, we don't have that many employees. Uh, we do make our own food, which I'm really, really proud of. But to really get real change, and if you look at any category, you know, if you look at a food category, if you looked at Zarbies in the OTC category, it's always the small independently challenger brands that jump on to really disrupt a category. If you look at pet food, look, the big companies like the margins they make. 
The big companies like the way business is done. They've got millions and millions of dollars invested in machinery and everything else that they have that, wow, if we had to make different types of bags or we had to make different types of formulas, that would upset their supply chain. And at the end of the day, would probably disrupt a little bit their gross margin and what they make on the bottom line. Um, So for me, if we got a lot of competition that's quickly started copying us in terms of what we were doing with sustain, um, and sustain and some of the sustainability uh, practices that we've put in place. Two things. One, it means we've arrived, and that means it's really catching on because consumers are opting in. So that would be great news. But even more importantly, you know, there's it's a big category. It's over thirty billion dollars just in pet food. And what I would really love, if you really think about, you know, you work, you want obviously we all want to make some money, but. If we can really leave an impact on the world and I can get a General Mills or a Mars or a Nestle um, or a Colgate to follow our lead and start really getting into sustainability, then we've really fundamentally changed the way the categories run and we fundamentally have done good for the rest of the world and for the planet. And that would be highly, highly rewarding. So I'm not so worried about competition. In fact, if they started copying us, that would mean a lot of good things, not just for candidate, but way beyond. And that, again, would be very gratifying. So I know that you just launched the Sustain campaign in April, but I get the feeling you're not the kind of guy that would rest on his laurels. So what's on the horizon for candidate? What's coming down the pipeline? Um, Well, a lot. I mean, ultimately, you know, we just had an innovation meeting internally and the pipeline for innovation around sustainable products is quite large and extensive. And I'm very, very grateful for my team for pulling it together. I think it's really about time and place, not when, but not if, but when we can't just continue to put out new and new products, even though consumers love new products is because we need to start to make sure some of these products actually gain traction and actually um, gain volume. As you can imagine when products are not making tons of volume, um, the cost to manufacture is very, very high. So volume helps us, you know, if consumers opt in and we get more and more volume, that'll give us oxygen to then bring more products into the market. But the way I would look at it is across three verticals. We're going to bring more products to market, dry, wet, treats, et cetera. That will be more around the ingredients and how we're sourcing those ingredients in terms of uh, sustainability practice, whether that's the proteins, whether that's the vegetables, et cetera. We talked about that. You're going to see more innovation around the packaging. Um, you know, the 40%, you know, recycled, uh, post-recycled uh, packaging, that's nice. That is not the end game. So you're going to see more of that from Canada in the future um, across uh, multiple lines of business. Um, but I think there's a lot we can do around packaging. And then lastly, just around supply chain, um, we're right now trying to, you know, if a factory in Brownwood, Texas, we're trying to use rail to bring our ingredients in as often as we possibly can because the carbon footprint is so much lower. But we're also now looking at op- opportunities on how do we, you know, ship our products differently so that we can also reduce carbon footprint. We have some ideas around that that uh, we'll be working with uh, the pet specialty industry to, to bring to life. So all of them are different stages of readiness um, and all is really dependent upon can we get some real traction and real enthusiasm from the consumer around what we've already put in market because doing so will allow us to bring a lot more to market sooner versus later. Perfect. And if someone wants to keep up on the updates with candidate, where should they go? Yeah. I mean, we have, obviously there's candidate.com. Uh, we're on Instagram. Uh, we have a LinkedIn, uh, profile as well. Um, 
we're trying to get, you know, we're trying to put more and more like through this podcast, more and more uh, information out there on who we are. Uh, we're a small brand and, you know, a lot of people are not yet aware of us. We're not a household name yet today. Um, I think we've got a fast and growing following, which we're very, very excited about and passionate consumers. Um, and I'm hoping to, you know, to keep getting the message out so that uh, more people can opt in and help us with our mission. All right, perfect. And I think that brings us to the end of today's session. I want to thank Brett for his time today. And remember, if you're new to the Food Institute podcast, please follow, like, and share. If you'd like to learn more about the Food Institute, please take a look at the links in our description to learn more about us and what membership could do for you and your company. So until next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off.